Hello, hello and welcome along to this week's edition of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED Editor Luke Nichols here at our headquarters in West Sussex. It's the afternoon of Thursday the 6th of October and I'm joined here in uh, quite a cold podcast uh, studio uh, by the rest of the editorial team here to bring you some exclusive interviews and round up the latest innovations and sustainability success stories that are driving the green economy. Coming up on today's show... With The Apprentice returning to our screens tonight, we sit down with the star of last year's series who discusses her passion for renewable energy and provides some important tips for startups. You need to utilise all of the resources that you can to be able to finance renewable energy projects because there is such a high amount of investment needed. And also there's a lot of, you know, it tends to be above average returns, but actually it's a very long term investment. Then we talk backstage with the headline speaker of our latest ED Leaders Club event, who gives a fascinating insight into using retail marketing techniques to drive behaviour change on sustainability. Whether that's thinking more about the consumer insight or whether it's about channels or the longevity of building awareness and translating that into the behaviours and frequency, applying things that have got a lot written about them and the skills are well known into the workplace can be really effective. So yes, welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this, our 12th show. I suppose it's technically our 13th show because last week's was a two-parter, but we'll stick with 12. Um, I'm joined here in the studio, as ever, by Edie's senior reporter, Matt Mace, and reporter George Ogilby. How are we guys? Both shivering? Yeah, yeah. it's a bit cold. It's, uh, it's, it stays like this where global warming seems like a far-off reality, doesn't it? Yeah, I was wondering how, how efficient it is to have a broken boiler. I mean, technically you can't be consuming energy when nothing works, but... Uh, yeah, for, my, my breath isn't quite visible yet, so it's not that cold. Yeah, so for listeners, um, we have got an office here where the, the heating appears to have broken or just not come on since the summer, uh, and they're looking to repair it. But basically, me and we're in the, the corner sort of office or studio here, and uh, it's not really warm at all. Um, but otherwise, good week, guys. Particular highlights? Any highlights for you, Matt? What in general? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> are we keeping this related go, go to, for the, general. to the podcast? Hopefully, um, it's related to work. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, ED Leaders Club. It's good to it's good to see how interested people who kind of listen to this podcast through our website are, um, and who are kind of leading the way still want to get together and and talk about issues. Hmm. No, it was uh, yeah, that was a cracking event. We'll be discussing that later. George, any any highlights stand out for you? Yeah, I think for me it's uh, the ratification of the Paris Agreement. Hmm. Uh, having followed that very closely since I first joined over six, seven months ago, it's just staggering to see how far it's come and to actually get to this process where now it's in touch and distance. Yeah, um, although it's felt there's kind of been this strange sort of now week, sort of another week sort of bracket where we're sort of, I'm still a little bit unsure exactly when this is going to happen. We receive releases probably pretty much every day from people that are... Fourth of November, that's, that's, fourth of November. Yeah, that's when you get the flags and it's the flags out to celebrate. Remember, remember the 4th of November, okay. Exactly. Um, yeah, we'll have to wait for that then, but yeah, so good coverage on that this week. Um, that has been one of the one of the highlights, but lots of new stories again. Um, so last week in that uh, bumper two-part episode of this podcast, we heard a selection of interviews conducted by you both at um, various events and shows. And this week it's been my turn. So um, rather than discuss my highlights of the week with you, I'll play them to you here this afternoon. So if I said to you, Matt, um, Prokoviev, Dance of the Nights, would that mean anything to you? Not at all. George, does that ring any bells? Um, I think it does, <laughs> Okay, how about if I play the opening few seconds of it? You recognise that? Yeah, yeah. 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 
No, so that does mean, in fact, that uh, The Apprentice returns to our um, TV screens tonight uh, for the 12th series, um, Thursday evening tonight at 9pm. So, ready yourself for a fresh bunch of sharp-suited entrepreneurs looking to satisfy the whims of Lord Sugar on BBC One tonight. So why am I talking about this? Well, earlier this week we had a couple of retweets, um, you spotted them George, of um, from Edie's Twitter account, from Jenny Garbis. And as a regular watcher of The Apprentice, I, I thought I recognised the name and, and sure enough had a look at her profile and she was a contestant on the show last year. Now there are 18 candidates in each series, so I'm not expecting you to know all of them, but you may remember the episode fairly early on in the series last year, which saw the candidates have to buy and sell produce from abroad. So some of them went over to France. And in that, that was the episode, basically, that Jenny actually got fired. Uh, I had a look um, on Jenny's account on Twitter and on her LinkedIn profile and discovered that um, not only is she interested in the fields of sustainability and renewable energy, because there was lots of tweets about all of that, but she's actually become quite involved in it over the past couple of years. Um, so last year she authored a digital guide which is now for sale on Amazon I think and, and that guide is titled How to Fund a Startup in Renewable Energy. had a quick read through that, skim read through that and thought it was actually really insightful. Um, it was released midway through last year which was obviously a tough time to be releasing a book on renewable energy with the amount of green policy changes that happened so quickly in that particular period but it's, um, it's a pretty useful document nonetheless. And Jenny's day job is now working for a corporate finance advisory firm um, based just off of Waterloo Bridge in London. Uh, and more recently there, she's actually been involved in a couple of projects that touch on the green energy sector. So it's essentially fusing her two areas of expertise in renewable energy and business development. So given all of that relevance and the bonus that The Apprentice is back on TV screens tonight, I thought this would make a great interview for the podcast and it does, I think, hopefully, the listeners will agree. Um, so I'm about to play my chat in full. But as a segue into that, um, let's hear a bit more of that addictive theme tune. Hello, everybody. So, uh, as you can probably still hear in the background there, um, that infamous classical theme tune from The Apprentice. Um, and usually at this point you'd be hearing the voiceovers of um, entrepreneurs as they walk across a bridge in London. Um, but instead, you're hearing myself, ED editor Luke Nichols, and I'm joined here in an amazing office block, right next to a bridge in London, actually, um, by the former Apprentice candidate, Jenny Garbis, who was the third person, I think, to um, exit the show uh, in last year's series. Jenny, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Luke. I'm very, very happy to have this interview with you today. Yeah, and... Um, excited that The Apprentice is back on? I suppose a little bit relieved that you're not under the spotlight this time around? Or? Yeah, God, no, it's really exciting. Um, and God, I know exactly what those candidates are going to be going through right now. It's it's an absolute thrill when you see, you know, I don't know, because the thing is you have to keep it quiet for so long. Mm. Um, so you have about six months where you can't tell anyone. So it's quite yeah. a big deal, actually, the day that it comes out. Yeah. Um, In other words, the candidates that have gone through the process for this series that's about to come out have already gone through the process, that's right? Correct, right. yeah. yeah. Right. So the majority of them would have already been kind of filmed and things like that. Mm. Um, and then the very final two, they then film some more kind of 
around Christmas time, but most of it is done by now, yeah. Right, I see. And um, I guess if we started with the music, we might as well um, start there. I mean, your time on The Apprentice um, probably seems like a very long time ago now. There may be people listening to this, though, that recognise the name, perhaps recognise the voice. Um, so perhaps you could just start by just recapping on what happened last time round. Um, yeah, how's it go? Okay, so firstly, The Apprentice is a fantastic opportunity. So, I mean, there were over 80,000 applicants last year, and I was lucky enough to be one of the um, one of the 18 chosen to be on the actual show. So I got the call, and I was a lecturer at university, and I had to leave the lecture hall and, and found out I was on the show, which was crazy. Mm. But anyway, kind of um, a massive whirlwind experience, amazing experience, you know, fantastic Um, kind of entrepreneurs that built themselves up from nothing to create really successful businesses. They're all interested in creating a really positive impact on the world and I think we all really shared that. Mm. Um, And uh, yeah, so in terms of kind of my experience, um, yeah, absolutely loved it and I'd say great people but I mean, it is a very intense process so Mm. you're getting kind of one or two hours sleep a night just like the current candidates now will be doing good luck to them Um, and for me it was actually a task where we had to get nine items across two countries so the UK and France I remember this one yeah (laughs) yeah and then um, and so won't bore you with all the details but basically I ended up you know getting sacked Mm. Um, you know so you try and work as a team but you know you've got 18 very very fiery characters all mm. together so mm. um but, but yeah so good luck to the new candidates yeah a successful experience though i guess in terms of a learning curve for you personally career-wise so i would say so so i met some fantastic people as i said um and most of the other candidates have enjoyed extra sales or extra pr for their businesses and even for them from the show mm. so what i quite liked about our year group is that actually all of us are quite serious business people, even though that may not come across sometimes. Um, but yeah, it, it's helped all of them actually. So um, some of them got tons of sales actually off the back of it. Mm. Others have done crowdfunding campaigns um, and been able to raise a heck of a lot of money actually as a result of the extra PR and, and also being a decent business. Yeah. Um, but for me, I was approached by a variety of different people that wanted to help me finance my business, which by the way, I was in financing renewable energy um, technologies. And um, actually, so Frances Dickens was one of the um, panellists on my You're Fired panel, that kind of fun show that you do Mm. after The Apprentice, for those of you that watched it. Um, And she actually caught up with me after the show. She's CEO of a a media bartering company, Ostis Group, and her business turns over, you know, for 300 million a year. She's very successful in her own right. Anyway, and she's kindly offered to support me and be my business mentor. So actually her, her business partner, and then their investor now actually kind of um, kind of mentoring position, I suppose, um, which was, you know, fantastic. So stuff like that that's come out as a, as a result of The Apprentice is something that's phenomenal. And, you know, the support system I had when I came out as well, mm. everyone was so supportive mm. and really good experience. Yeah, good. Um, well, I suppose... This is a good point to actually bringing uh, some sustainability here. I mean, listeners to this Sustainable Business Covered podcast may at this point be wondering why we're speaking to a former star of The Apprentice, but there's actually a good reason for doing so. Um, it was actually your Twitter account that drew our attention to this because you've been tweeting some of Edie's stories, thanks for that, um, <laughs> along with a few other social media shares related to the worlds of renewable energy, climate change, electric cars, things like that. Um, perhaps you could just explain, though, in your own words, Jenny, um, the work you've been doing in the kind of the green business or renewable energy spheres 
over the past couple of years up to this point? Sure. So actually, to take you a bit further back, it all started when I was probably about year eight in, um, in a classroom. Quite early on. Then. Um, yeah, so I um, basically, we were talking about kind of renewable energies and sustainable technologies, and we were doing a discussion about wind farms. And for me, it was just something that was fascinating for some reason and then kind of later in life I then at university ended up producing the first climate week for 2013 in um, which you probably I mean, you don't know this yet about me do you <laughs> <laughs> but um, I actually did the first ever climate week in Bournemouth and Pool Borough Council oh, wow, okay. um, and, uh, and, and I guess it grew and grew from there mm. and then I was in my final year at university and I just thought this is such a huge growth market in terms of renewable energy specifically actually um, so I decided to do a business plan well, actually my dissertation came first so I did a dissertation on financing renewable energy technologies so firstly how, how on earth do you finance a startup business was one but then actually I did a spin focusing purely on the renewable energy market and um, really why I have a passionate about this market um, is we have a world energy crisis and all of us know that one day the finite resources will be scarce and we'll need to turn to newer technologies to be able to generate the energy that we need to facilitate life on our planet. Mm. So I'm passionate about it from a social well-being point of view but also from kind of an entrepreneurial um, perspective where there's opportunity, there is a lot of money to be made. Mm. So I work in the world of financing high-growth startups at the moment which I'll come on to later and um, I actually work with some of the leaders in this market to finance renewable energy so it's a huge growing sector with huge growth potential. And I guess in my dissertation, um, I found that actually, and I'll come on to the kind of findings um, as a result of the book I published, but there's so much work to be done in this market. It's such a fascinating industry. Um, and it's something that people just need to divert their attention to. And there's a lot of problems in terms of policies, not, you know, emissions targets not being met, etc. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me it's just something that needs a lot more attention and I thought um, I would write a business plan on it so I did and I basically came up with an equity funding platform specifically for renewable energy technologies Okay. Um, and then it all kind of stemmed from there. Okay so um, let's just start with the book then that you've um, authored, it's part of a guide titled um, How to Fund a Startup and it focuses on the renewable energy market. Um, I must admit I hadn't read the entire guide when I was um, reading a sample of it here on, on, on the way, um, but it does look like you've gone into really great depth with it, um, throwing yourself into the renewable energy market when putting it together. Um, also saw on your LinkedIn profile actually that you've listed the environment as a key um, concern of yours, something you really care about. What was it then that really inspired you in this area? You say it goes back to sort of year eight and then all the way through you're now looking kind of much more seriously at these kind of equity funding options, um, funding options for renewable energy. Why are you so passionate about renewable energy development and, and sustainable business, I guess? Sure. So the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report states that all fossil fuel-based electricity without carbon capture and storage will no longer exist by the 22nd century. And all energy will be sourced from renewables, nuclear and CCS-enabled generation. And this innovation burst needs both public and private sector funding. Mm -hmm. And there's more focus than ever on supporting renewable energy innovation in the UK and beyond. Um, And really, for me, it was about being a catalyst to actually help finance renewable energy. So 
Um, for example, you know, what I found actually is that globally there's a $13 trillion funding gap in the renewable energy market, which basically means that you need that much money to be able to facilitate the technology and innovation to then walk to work towards solving the world's energy crisis. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my book then, the reason why I actually decided to publish it and to do something aside from my dissertation, so my dissertation was you know 160 pages, extremely kind of in-depth um, mm. research piece. And within that, by the way, I spoke to you know, renewable energy entrepreneurs. I spoke to people like Innovate UK, mm-hmm. who were obviously financing renewable energy, um, and then private investors, institutional investors, um, you know, larger companies focusing on it, etc. But really, my book was about almost like a PR piece, really, to actually help entrepreneurs understand what is available to them in terms of funding. Because, I mean, initially, actually, I wanted to come up with a renewable energy product that I could sell. But then what I realised is that I'm actually better at explaining how to connect people with funding. Mm. And that was really a huge interest of mine, which is now actually kind of what I do at the moment, as Mm. well as it being my business plan. Okay, and um, what were the key findings then? Okay, so one of the key findings is actually there's a huge education piece to be done for consumers of energy. And there's a huge, huge disconnect, um, because it's just not front of mind for people to think about where their energy is coming from. And really, what it boils down to is that globally, if our planet has an average temperature rise of two degrees above centigrade, a lot of our land is actually going to be covered in water. Mm. So it's a huge, huge problem. But secondly, at the time of publishing my ebook, which was you know 2015, um, just actually this time last year, mm. um, there was a 13 trillion dollar funding gap globally in financing renewable energy, and there's a one pound trillion funding gap just within the UK alone Um, so policies are made to reduce the amount of emissions we produce and to ramp up renewable energy innovation and yet all targets are missing and they're simply overlaid with new targets Mm. so for example you'd say I want to reduce you know energy emissions by blah um, you know up until I don't know 2050 but then when 2050 comes you actually don't meet that mm. and instead of them saying okay we didn't do that let's you know let's do something else they just overlay that target and they say okay well let's push it out to 2060 yeah so it's it's kind of it needs to be more of a priority mm. so other issues exist such as renewable energy cannot be the only resource so actually battery storage is an ongoing issue um, and some renewable energies uh, or rather some renewable technologies are great in concept but then actually produce very little energy as output so mm. For example, one of the findings was um, the entire UK coastline would actually be completely covered in wind farms and wind turbines if you were going to be able to produce enough energy just for the UK. Mm-hmm. So you cannot have that amount of land available for wind farms, mm. um, nor can just solar energy be the only provider of renewable energy for our um, country, etc. But another interesting finding was that people were interested in renewable energy, but there's a lack of a lack of understanding. So it's really about education and then also having mainstream discussions within the media about alternative energies. Mm. But actually, to brighten your spirits, it's not all doom and gloom because renewable energy is featuring more in mainstream media. And more recently, we've had, you know, Solar Impulse, who are the first solar plane to travel around the world. This week, Theresa May announced that she'll be ratifying the Paris Agreement this year and developing countries are doing a good job of sticking to targets to become 100% run on renewable energy. So, for example, Cape Verde by 2020 want to be you know, 100% run on renewable energy. Mm. 
Um, companies are also vowing to do more. So just in the last few weeks, automotive companies have vowed to be run on 100% renewable energy, just like General Motors, yeah. or they're putting a lot of resource into creating affordable renewable energy run vehicles. So for example, Volkswagen have just announced that they want to have 100 million electric cars by 2025. And actually, the electric vehicle costs only 30 grand. It is, it's an interesting one, isn't it, the EV market? It's if you're going to pick a market that really encapsulates the, um, the level and extent of change you can see from a sustainability perspective, I suppose, you know, what Tesla has actually done in that market in terms of electrification is radical. And you mentioned Volkswagen, and obviously in the, um, in the wake or aftermath of, of, of what they've gone through, it's amazing the level of shake-up we've seen actually in that low-carbon market. So it's an interesting one for you to have kind of, you know, drawn attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just going to ask you a question off the back of that while you, while you were mentioning some of the changes that have happened um, over the past year. There have been a lot of them, particularly from a kind of policy perspective, a green policy perspective in the UK. Um, many of them have been sort of punitive, to say the least. Um, Feed-in tariff changes stands out there quite highly. Um, support for offshore wind has been scrapped. Yeah. Subsidies for smaller solar projects being ditched. The list does really go on here. We've got Biomass Green Deal. I've kind of noted a lot of them down that have kind of either been axed or subsidies changed. Um, mm. Is that a surprise to you to see the government taking this sort of chop and change approach to green policy, which could actually be deterring renewable energy investors or making it much harder for startups? So it's um, it's a great shame, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a surprise. So actually, one of the findings of my research was that people are less inclined to invest in renewable energy at that time due to feed-in tariffs, etc., being cut. So mm-hmm. without any subsidies, obviously, people are going to be less inclined to engage in renewable energy, and actually they'd rather invest their money elsewhere, potentially. But at the moment, I mean, so I work in investing um, into high growth businesses at the moment. And actually, I work with, you know, some really large firms, actually, that are focusing a lot more on sustainable energy, sustainable development, renewable energy, and so on. So just, for example, the other day, I had a meeting with the Social Stock Exchange, um, a guy called Thomas Cruthers there, a very impressive guy. But essentially, David Cameron helped set this initiative up. So it's kind of like a stock exchange, if you imagine. But the fact that it's a social stock exchange means that it's high growth businesses that can have above average returns, but actually they're all involving some kind of social good. Mm. So renewable energy isn't the only stream, but it's one of the streams. Um, Another company I've been talking to is Deepbridge Capital, and um, another one is Greenbackers Capital. So there's actually quite a few firms now that are focusing solely on renewable energy, and it's it's largely on um, equity funding. Mm. So actually, obviously, giving, you know, the company would give away some equity in exchange for financing their business, and then that is how they grow. Mm. And that seems to be the way of the world at the moment, because Mm. less people are going to be, so for example, banks um, are going to be less inclined to um, loan money to such companies. So actually, a lot of people are going down the equity financing route. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll get onto that actually in a second, because it's really interesting kind of the way you've moved into post kind of writing that guide. Um, But just finally, I mean, um, what would be your sort of your key advice then for renewable energy startups, perhaps based on the experience and um, expertise you gleaned from from putting together that guide? Um, Is there any kind of key kind of bullet point tips or advice that you would give to a startup in this area? Well, there's one key one, really, which is... um, don't expect to get your funding from one source. So, um, 
and actually that's not just from my guide that's just in general from so the guide yes my dissertation yes the business plan yes you know I did a heck of a lot of research talking to entrepreneurs investors institutional investors um, public bodies government etc but actually the one main theme that I realized that seems quite obvious now but you cannot finance renewable energy with just one source so you need to use government subsidies where, where there are any <laughs> but for example Innovate UK they will give you know government grants for example and yes there's a lot of red tape and yes they might be quite kind of long forms to fill in and, and it's quite a long process to get that funding but actually the, it is a bit of a priority for them to be investing in social good companies including renewable energy so that's one route to go down another route to go down is um, what we like to call probably shouldn't say this but friends families and fools so what you do is you would do an initial seed funding round between the people that know you the best Mm -hmm. then you would probably go go out and find an amazing board in that particular market so that you've got a really impressive founding team um, for private investors to invest in so then you go to private investment I'd recommend doing equity investment um, as a first stage it could be suitable for crowdfunding um if you had a product that you thought would engage the audience. So uh, people like Clearly So, um, Abundance Generation, and a few of them escape me now, but there's quite a lot of firms now that are actually involving crowdfunding um, in that market. And actually a couple of the names I mentioned earlier are. But really the, the key thing I'm trying to get across here is you, you need to utilise all of the resources that you can to be able to finance renewable energy projects because... There is such a high amount of investment needed. Mm. Um, and also there's a lot of, you know, it tends to be above average returns, but actually it's a very long-term investment. Yeah. So if I'm an investor investing in renewable energy, I'm not going to expect to get, you know, a quick return. Mm. So some of the companies that I normally with will have a work with will have an exit of perhaps five to seven years, for example. Mm-hmm. So for an investor, if I put in a quarter of a million, I can expect to get a return on my investment within five to seven years if the company doesn't go bust. Right, so yeah. Whereas with renewable energy, you're looking at probably 10 years plus. This isn't always, but this is just a lot of them, mm. I would say. So yeah, so as, as a, a renewable energy entrepreneur, firstly, congratulations, because you've actually entered into the market, and that's a great thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, just make sure that you have enough finance for your business, because the number one reasons why business fail, businesses fail is because your cash flow isn't on point and you know, you're running out of money. Mm. And renewable energy in particular is one of the industries where you need the most amount of money to be able to be successful because the technology is so expensive to develop. There's a lot of R&D investment involved. So, for example, you can get research and development credits from the government. So I think really you need to look at your business and what you're trying to achieve and also understand which areas can be financed by which kind of people. Mm, mm. So, for example, if you're heavily on R&D, I would say go to government. If, you're, if you've done all that, but actually you need to develop another prototype, you know, maybe go to crowdfunding. Mm. If you just need to do marketing, maybe crowdfunding or equity investment, you, know, you need to think about what kind of business you have. Mm. And I do actually explain this in my guide, not to plug it, but um, <laughs> it is actually quite clearly laid out in mm. my guide. Interesting. Uh, I mean, given your entrepreneurial flair, um, did this not make you sort of one day want to start up your own renewable energy company? Is that something you've ever thought about? Oh, God, absolutely. No, 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 I'd love to. I just need to meet an amazing co-founder. <laughs> so I would probably do the, you know, the raising capital, 
coming up with ideas with them, but mm. I'd need to work with a scientist or something really, or a technology genius. But um, no, it's definitely in the pipeline. But but at the moment, I'm really enjoying the financing side of, of renewable energy and, and other technologies as mm. well. Um, and one of my roles actually is to actually license out crowdfunding we don't really want to call it crowdfunding necessarily, but crowdfunding type technology okay. to individual entrepreneurs or to larger finance corporations that basically want to raise capital from their customer base or they want to give an added value service to their private wealth client. So, for example, the reason why I stay away from crowdfunding is because it's actually more wealth technology. So you have a minimum investment of 25k. So, in fact, this is quite relevant to renewable energy because mm. if you want to generate a lot of investment you can actually set the minimum requirement mm. rather than going to a general crowdfunder. So that's actually another route for new, renewable energy entrepreneurs. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so um, actually now just, I guess, moving away from the book then um, and looking at this investment firm that you've joined then. And I think in May of this year you joined... Um, sure, you've done company. your research well. I have, yeah. <laughs> I did have a good look on the way up here. But um, yeah, so we're sat in the offices now of um, investors with an E. Um, tell us a bit about your work here. Okay, so um, Investors has been going since 2004. We're a corporate finance broker and um, investment firm. So we raise capital, equity-driven capital for um, high-growth startup businesses. So normally people under the Enterprise Investment Scheme, if you know much about that. Yes. Cool. So that's high-growth businesses and it's tax. So one thing the the government have done and kept, which is good, um, is that they have SEIS and EIS Mm -hmm. tax benefits for renewable, well it doesn't have to be renewable energy entrepreneurs, a variety of different entrepreneurs. So the Enterprise Investment Scheme essentially gives, well helps with capital gains for investors and then also provides 30% tax relief on their investment. So it basically means that um, if you're investing in a startup it's less risky than it would be without right, tax benefits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so we've been, um, yeah, say going since 2004 and that's what we do. Um, and we sometimes work with renewable energy firms. Um, so we had a company called Plas Recycle and then a kind of a few others in the waste management um, market. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, my specific role is that we um, basically developed our own funding platform um, for our businesses. So we upload our 3,000 investors on the platform. Then we upload the companies that we're looking to raise money for onto mm-hmm. the platform and then investment, we basically facilitate investment online. So you can submit an online binding pledge as an investor into one of these growth businesses. So it's kind of like crowdfunding, but we just avoid the word crowd because it's not a tenner, it's 25k. Mm-hmm. But then my particular role is um, I basically sell into um, financial institutions, banks, government bodies, non-profit organisations, sometimes and quite frequently actually centred around renewable energy. Mm. But um, And basically we provide them with a funding platform for them to grow their own investor network and then also raise capital for the businesses that they work with. Right. So when I mentioned um, Greenbackers, the Social Stock Exchange and Deepbridge Capital, those are three of um, the companies I'm talking to at the moment who actually facilitate renewable energy investment into high-growth renewable energy companies. Um, so I happily still get involved with, um, yeah, with that side say, of things. So that kind of that, that marries two of your, your passions then, I guess. Yeah. Energy. yeah, totally. And it's all kind of investment into unquoted companies. So if you're a high-growth startup, that's definitely a good route to go down because, mm. and it doesn't have to be with us, but something that um, entrepreneurs can do is to actually license out 
their this particular funding platform and then create their own investor network. Okay. Because what a lot of people don't realise in terms of crowdfunding is that actually entrepreneurs tend to generate investment largely from their own sources. So without naming names, for example, we had a company that came to us from a mainstream crowdfunding site. Um, and actually 85% of the investment they raised was through their own sources. So actually they only got 15% worth of investment from, you know, from this platform. Mm. So they you know, came to us and used the platform and um, they were able to raise... They've just closed at 450,000 and it only took them three or four weeks, you know, which wow. is amazing. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I get quite heavily involved in that side of things. But, um, and then I also work with some companies to raise money for them. So for example, if I work with, um, like greenbackers who invest in renewable energy, I might actually get involved in potentially, um, those companies getting them investment ready, etc. Right. I see. Um, so yeah. And are you looking at moving more into that space? I know you're fairly early on here, relatively, but is it something that you have a long-term dream to potentially be sort of managing that space entirely, or do you always see it as kind of one aspect of where you're working? Well, you mentioned my Twitter, and mm. you can probably see that a lot of it is posting about renewable energy. So mm. I'm hugely up to date on the market, mm. um, and it's definitely, definitely something that I want to go into. And actually, my time here. It's been hugely beneficial, but also has spurred me on even further to get into the renewable energy market and actually really help solve this energy crisis. Yeah. Um, because I just think it's such a massive, massive problem and it affects everyone. Yeah. All of us use energy. And people just need to wake up to the fact that eventually we are going to run out of our finite resources and we do need to convert to you know, better technologies for renewable energy better sources for um, battery storage. These are the kind of businesses that we need to be facilitating, putting investment into, and the government need to wake up a little bit to understand that actually it needs to be a priority. Mm. Yeah, and it's fascinating actually that you mentioned sort of going back to when you were kind of, um, I think you said in year eight. Um, yeah, that you sort of When this kind of sort of passion sort of began. Um, and actually I guess this nicely brings us round, back round to The Apprentice because my last question I was going to ask you was, about apprenticeships we ran an, an episode of sustainable business covered a few weeks ago which touched on apprenticeships in sustainability and csr or perhaps the lack of them i guess um and the lack of kind of i guess a, a skills gap that is being identified in in our in our area do you think from your experience is apprenticeships is that a good route into a career um would you have perhaps for example been enticed by a apprenticeship in sustainability or renewable energy definitely so i think apprentices are a fantastic way to engage people because not everyone needs to go to university this kind of obsession with everyone needing to go to university i mean for me you know it was kind of eight hours of lectures a week I've, i was working three jobs um you know i ended up leaving three months early to participate in the apprentice having to do business plan a dissertation um publishing my book and also being on The Apprentice, mm. you know, in the space of about a month. Um, so, but for most people, really, you need to go to university if you're going to be a doctor or, you know, a vet or a lawyer. But really, if you need to be qualified in something, then of course you need to go to university. Mm. So if you're a lawyer, you do that, and you go to law school. That's just how the way of the world is. Mm. But, you know, I did a business degree, and I really enjoyed it. But actually, you know, I was never massively into university in the mm. sense of, if somebody had given me an apprenticeship or well, there had been an apprenticeship and available for me to apply to, um, I think it's much better to get practical experience. Um, and I mean, I went to Bournemouth University and actually I really enjoyed that because 
that's where I did my, you know, launching Climate Week 2013 in that in that okay. market right. because um, I got to work with Bournemouth and Poole Borough Councils and Innovate UK to actually launch that. So for me, that was a real world project that I got to work on and in, in a market I was interested in with really fascinating people. So if you can find quite a practical degree, if you're a practical person, then maybe university is the right thing. But apprenticeship is a fantastic degree. So for example, my brother is very entrepreneurial, but He's twenty. What? Um, he's turning twenty-one on Wednesday, actually. But he never went to university, and he's always been very practical. Mm. And um, he's actually been more in the automotive industry. Um, and uh, I'm sure he'd have lots to say on, um, you know, renewable energy and, and electric cars and that kind of mm. stuff. But uh, you know, it's not for everyone. Mm. So I think it is a fantastic route to go down. Um, and it would be nice if more um, employers actually connected people to that there's actually a company that we're raising money for at the moment called ULAS that's doing exactly that so they're a recruitment tool that acts between um, corporate employers and school leavers so actually you miss out university completely and they're trying to actually connect the gap which is quite interesting wow yeah well fascinating stuff it was a great way to end the discussion Um, great to see you doing so much after the apprentice we were mentioning beforehand actually you know you can end up being a little bit siloed coming out of the apprentice but you've actually done you've kind of continued with your full steam ahead yeah Yeah, so um, (laughs) thanks for that good luck hopefully we'll catch up again in a few years time when maybe you've progressed those ambitions in the renewable energy space sure great thanks very much for having me thanks very much cheers jenny so there you go then um thank you very much to jenny for having that chat with us on such short notice um i think it was literally all arranged within the same day of her following us on twitter and good luck to her moving forward Now, moving forward with this podcast, um, we transition from the entrepreneurs to the leaders. On Wednesday, yesterday morning, uh, we held our fourth EDD Leaders Club event in the form of a breakfast briefing. Now, for anyone listening who isn't aware of the club, I will include a link within the story that accompanies this podcast. Um, But basically, it's an exclusive member-only group for sustainability leaders who come together for these free events to share knowledge, expertise and best practice in the journey to make business more sustainable. Each of the Leaders Club's events tend to be focused on key themes or challenges and yesterday we we turned the spotlight onto the beast that is behaviour change. So our headline speaker for the breakfast briefing was Bridget Jackson um, and she's the head of corporate sustainability at PwC. And she gave a fascinating discussion there at the British Library in London. Matt, you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, you already mentioned it was a good highlight for you. So you enjoyed it? Yeah, I did. Um, it, was, it was a real kind of eye-opener. Like um, PwC are a company we've kind of heard about, cover a lot, but that was a real kind of, you know, almost like a behind-the-scenes um, chat. They, she kind of took us through all, all a, a whole range of stuff from kind of food recycling to anaerobic digestion to just kind of cutting down on travel emissions through the kind of, I think it's Webex or Webex. Or yeah, or Webex, something. yeah. And I think that's the bit that really kind of stuck with me was how they were using that and they had their slogans, the whole kind of like using it as like a dating app kind of mm. thing. And it wasn't just a case of we've rolled this out, change your behaviours and use it. It was a case of we've rolled this out and now we're going to keep reminding you to use it. Mm. It was interesting, the kind of graphs you showed at the end whereby you would, um, you know, you'd see a kind of tail off in the amount of people using web, the amount of people interacting with mm. this initiative. So when that kind of, when that kind of fall, or not fall, but kind of, I suppose, slowdown began to happen, that's when they rolled out the next kind of advertisement towards it. It was a good way to 
measure and influence behavior change in that aspect yeah it, it might sound a bit bizarre sort of talking in about the uh, sort of you know the dating approach that they took to things but it was basically a, what was really fascinating about it was essentially the the focus and level of detail she went into on applying marketing techniques retail marketing techniques to drive behavior change um so i won't go into too much detail here actually i don't want to give away all of the secrets to success um that are revealed at ED Leaders Club events, um, but I did have a very quick chat with Bridget immediately after her presentation, and we discussed the the key themes of her discussion and talked about the direction she's taking PwC in now when it comes to driving behaviour change within such a large corporation. Anyway, I'll stop talking about it now. Here's my chat with PwC's Bridget Jackson in full. So here we are then uh, in the British Library, in the George Eliot room of the British Library. Um, I'm joined here by Bridget Jackson, Director of Corporate Sustainability at PwC. Bridget, how are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, and Bridget has just given a great um, discussion here uh, for our ED Leaders Club um, breakfast briefing. Uh, the discussion was on behaviour change. It's obviously quite hard to summarise that discussion here in a, in a quick five, ten minute segment, Bridget, but um, if there was one key point I guess that you wanted to, to, to make about the theme of behaviour change that you were talking about this morning um, for sustainability professionals is there one kind of key thing you would like um, to leave sustainability professionals with from your discussion this morning I guess um, I've spent the last six years applying principles from mainstream marketing into a, a, an employee base and how you get sustainable behaviours at, at work and um, I think there's a lot which is in there which can help sustainability professionals, uh, whether that's thinking more about the consumer insight or whether it's about channels or the longevity of building awareness and translating that into the behaviours and frequency. Um, applying things that have got a lot written about them and the skills are well known into the workplace can be really effective in helping us to make a difference. Mm. And um, one of the key themes, I think, that came out of, of your session, which really chimed with a lot of the people in the room, was um, engaging with marketing communications teams on behaviour change. PwC have done some amazing campaigns. You showed us the videos and, and some of the pictures of the campaigns you've run. How important is it for a sustainability professional when looking to drive behaviour change to get their marketing and comms teams on board and essentially bridge that gap, if you like, so I guess one of the challenges for most sustainability teams is a lack of resources, um, partly because they're often quite small teams and partly because there's so many sustainable behaviours that we all want to tackle. And um, I think you just have to work with what you've got. Mm. And uh, the internal communications and marketing teams, brand teams, video teams, depending on what's available in your particular organisation, can be incredibly helpful in the delivery of what you're trying to do. On the other hand... Um, you know, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of sponsorship for the programs we've done and I've been able to bring on board people who have got some of those skills themselves so that we have been um, a bit more independent and have been able to really work um, deeply on the insight to get to creative solutions for some of the campaigns we run. Hmm. Okay, and um, actually thinking about one or two of the slides in your presentation, um, you discussed segmentation um, in there um, as a way of kind of driving an effective campaign measuring it is that the right i mean for you you mentioned that there was it was a route that you you learned from but wasn't necessarily the right one for pwc what was your kind of your key learning in in that area 
Yeah, it's right that um, I spent quite a bit of time looking at attitudinal segmentation, thinking that people's attitude to sustainability uh, would lead us to want to use different types of messages depending on whether they were deep green, a bit green or not green at all. And we tested this quite scientifically with split testing for, a, uh, for quite a period of time and actually discovered that it wasn't the main driver. And so sociodemographic segmentation, uh, looking at specific parts of your population and your workforce, it can be really useful. And in fact, you can use segmentation to broaden out the appeal of sustainable behaviours. We did that in our Cycle to Work campaign, extending it from just uh, primarily males in Lycra to different types of riders that might want to come to work mm. uh, on a bicycle. And I think segmentation has a really important role to play, but the attitudinal one I don't think is the main dimension. Okay. But there's still, I guess an element of, of making these campaigns personal when possible? Yeah, definitely. Um, it, the messaging that you uh, want to deliver about sustainability needs to, to resonate with what they're already being asked to do for their core roles. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they may feel like they jar a little bit and you have to find a way to work with the grain. Um, and it's also possible to tap into people's latent emotions about things in order to really make it personal and to get it to resonate uh, with them. Hmm. Uh, a couple of examples of that are that when we were um, uh, running a campaign, which we've been doing for several years now, about online meetings as an alternative to travel, because carbon is one of our biggest environmental impacts, uh, we were not messaging about sustainability at all. It was all to do with building and strengthening relationships with clients and online meetings as an alternative, another good way of connecting and of building those relationships because to say, uh, please travel less, uh, was a more negative message. And so this was something which worked well alongside uh, existing corporate communications. Mm. On the other hand, we know that we have a lot of um, what I might call waste vigilantes so people who are really keen on recycling and who would like all of their colleagues to recycle. And if you can tap into that um, with a light tone and some humour and with personified different types of uh, recycling behaviours or waste behaviours, then uh, it allows them to police each other. It sounds like a strong term, but to work with each other and remind each other of the, what the good behaviours are. Mm. So... I think there are times when it's appropriate to talk about um, about sustainability for sustainable behaviours and other times when you might use more mainstream messaging. Mm. That's fascinating. Um, so, I mean, just to, to wrap up then, I mean, next on the agenda for you, there's so many areas you, mm. that you and your team work on in this area of behaviour change, but what's kind of top of your to-do list? It's a really interesting time for us because we set uh, targets for sustainability on a five-year sort of schedule and those come to fruition in July next year. Mm -hmm. So we'll be refreshing our strategy, reinvigorating it and look at what we do next. And one of the areas that I think uh, I'd like to revisit is um, building awareness all of, of all of the sustainability issues in a way that our people can take it out to client um, engagements. We have ongoing training for it, but the agenda moves so fast, it's so dynamic that there's new topics that pop up. And so the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, I think is a fantastic framework mm. uh, for us all to look at what can we do to contribute to those by 2030 and really make a difference through the client work that we're doing. Mm. Just really quickly, lastly, uh, you just mentioned the SDGs and it just made me think about um, that and, and Paris. Does that ever come in to these discussions about behaviour change? Do you ever kind of use um, SDGs, global frameworks, global issues around climate change within any of your messaging or do you think that's kind of too specific? Yeah, it's a good question. I think over time what we've discovered is that campaigns work best if they're really single-minded 
and so they're each serving to do a job. You can draw a line of sight back from that campaign to one of the SDGs, if not many of the SDGs, um, but we haven't put them front and centre per se um, because it can get confusing for people what you're asking them to do. Mm, mm. So we think the single-minded campaigns will work best. Okay. Fantastic words. You can probably hear the room has quietened down. Everyone's um, escaped now from the EDD's Club Breakfast Briefing. Um, thanks again, Bridget, for, for joining us, and we'll see you back at the, um, the drinks reception at the end of November. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bridget. Fascinating stuff there from Bridget. Um, a great speaker. We had some great feedback for that particular event as well. Um, and do stay tuned to ED over the next couple of weeks for a full feature um, that I'm in the process of writing, actually, about PWC's new circular economy ambitions. Um, that's all I'll say about it for now, but should be very interesting indeed. Anyway, now we have about five or ten minutes left for this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, and that gives us some time to end with a couple of our regular features. George, well done for not falling asleep over there. I um, hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Enthralling. Good. Um, now it's, it's your time to shine then. I'm, I'm hoping that you've been sat there drawing up your sustainability success story. So you've picked out a, a story which will hopefully leave us all feeling a little bit more positive about the way some businesses are really embracing the green economy. What have you got? Mm, certainly hope so, Luke. So this week, um, the success story comes from uh, the world of retail. Um, so yesterday marked a year to the day since the uh, launch of the 5P tax on plastic bags. I mean, mm. that was quite controversial when it started off. I remember I was in uproar about having to carry around my Sainsbury's oh, really? cookies. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I, when that came out, I thought, I just, I really, really genuinely didn't mind. Um, I just thought, it's kind of a natural part of the process. It was something that I thought should have been in place a, a long time ago, but I, I realised, yeah, there were quite there was quite an initial backlash for them mm. to it. Mm. But once it's kind of once it's in your shopping habits, you don't notice it too much. That's right. So we've had yeah behaviour change from customers, and it's also proved to have large economic be- benefits for the retailers. Um, so Tesco yesterday on the, to mark the first anniversary actually um, revealed that their number of bags had reduced by 1.5 billion, um, wow. generating quite a large uh, amount of revenue for them. And this, this has been a similar story with a lot of retail, retailers we've seen. Um, mm. So we have financial gains and environmental benefits as well. And it's been somewhat of a CSR, CSR success for these uh, retailers who have actually launched uh, like positive initiatives and social campaigns on the back of this uh, yeah because of course the money that they do raise that revenue then is going directly to good causes isn't it so um Mm. yeah we've done some amazing we've done some really interesting research into the um the data actually and and how supermarkets are then apportioning the money that they are getting in from the charge it's fascinating um some retailers are going down certain charity routes with it and actually raising lots of funds from the bags they're selling and then others are actually looking at completely minimising bag use altogether, therefore generating less funds. So it was, there was some interesting dynamics at play there. But um, yeah, generally the the uptake of it has been so swift mm. um, and following suit, I guess, of what we've seen in Scotland as well. Mm. So um, which has led commentators to suggest, could this happen now in terms of disposable... Um, Disposable coffee cups and mm. uh, and plastic bottles and whatnot. It'll be interesting to see if anything happens. I know it's had a lot of pl- uh, political leaders back in five p charge for mm. for bag housing. Yeah, just be walking around throwing around five p's everywhere. <laughs> what are they going to do with all the five p's? Maybe there's going to be a five p charge on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. I think that is a really really good success story. Um, <laughs> it's a great example of um, a small change, um, small additions. I guess a small change for the consumer 
that is can drive real holistic systemic change for the environment okay uh, and so last stop on the podcast then matt it's your innovation of the week um we still haven't developed a jingle for this yet but uh watch this space um I've been singing in the shower to practice <laughs> but yeah you're not you're not letting me through yet so you've picked out one of the green innovation green innovations that you think stands out this week what you got yeah so um a little bit of context about this one it's one that one that hits quite close to home mainly because i haven't drank alcohol in like four weeks um i'm not you know i've got a problem or anything Just like that explain i'm not shivering yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not attending aa meetings anything like that um i was doing stoptober but before october because i have birthdays and holidays lined oh, up okay. and um i was having a little trawl through some innovations and patagonia the american firm who mm. most recently are well known for kind of trying to put climate back on the uh, the voting agenda for, for voters out in the US. Okay, um, they've now um, invested um, a lot of money in a company who are known as the Hopworks Urban Brewery um, Center out in out in the US, and they basically developed a sustainable beer. And I've kind of got the science written down here as to why, if if it doesn't make sense, it's my handwriting that's <laughs> it, the issue. It will be described in your, in your full piece. Yeah, so basically common kind of um, beer growing techniques, you kind of use malted barley or, or wheat that's grown in annual rotation, so you kind of plant in spring, harvest in the fall, mm-hmm. rin- rinse and repeat. But um, this brewing company uses a super wheat known as Kernza. Okay. And basically once this is planted, it doesn't have to resurface for years. It can it can stay underground as, as long as you need be. So not only does that really cut down on the amount of fertiliser you have to use to grow it, it cuts down on the water consumption, the overall farming of the land. So um, the Hopworks Urban Brewery claim that this uses less water because um, it just needs less care. They're in the ground, they're absolutely fine. The roots go deeper, so that improves, um, that improves like, not improves soil erosion, improves the, the quality of the soil. Mm. And it also acts as like a carbon sink. It actually traps carbon from the atmosphere, so it's removing emissions and taking them underground and putting them in these carbon sinks underground. So all in all, you're left with this beer that is uses less water, improves the actual farming land, and captures carbon. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah and you know, it's, it's kind of comes at a, a good time as well. I think kind of when autumn rolls around, you've got kind of Halloween... Um, definitely in Southeast, you've got Bonfire Night. I'm sure it's one of the Kardashians' birthdays. I'm sure we all raise a glass to her <laughs> yeah. at some point. And then obviously Christmas, so it's it's at the point where um, where I'll certainly be um, having a few more drinks. Um, whether or not I can get hold of this it remains to be seen. But there's a growing trend. There's a Californian company that we're using um, wastewater to kind of use that in the process of, of producing their beer. Mm-hmm. There's a company out in Miami that produced edible six-pack rings to kind of help with that plastic pollution. And obviously you've been out to... Um, Heineken mm. to see their kind of carbon neutral city. We're we're closing in. If all these companies come together, we'd have the, the most sustainable <laughs> product in the world, and it would be a beer, which yeah. is, which is a dream come true for most people. I'm sure. Yeah. No, I look forward to you riv- telling that riveting story to your friends down in the pub. I'm um, sure they'll be just as uh, interested as uh, as our readers. <laughs> so yeah. not only won't you be drinking, you can bore them with that story. <laughs> exactly. Um, good stuff. Okay, so um, there you have it then. Um, just about wraps up this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, I think it's been quite a good episode actually. Um, but I suppose I would say that considering that was my turn for the interviews this week um but thanks again to you both matt and george um matt you're gearing up uh, or gearing down i suppose uh for a little break mm-hmm. next week aren't you yep away on thursday for a little trip to spain although um it's in lanzarote and the neighboring uh, island of tenerife has uh, 
been a few tremors from the volcano, so oh, really? uh, if I don't come back, <laughs> we'll just pray it's ash clouds rather than anything more severe. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, George and I will, will hold the fort here, um, so it might be just me and you, George, uh, in the podcast studio next week, hopefully a bit, a bit warmer. Um, stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll be bringing you more exclusive interviews uh, with a focus next week on new business models and green policy. Finally, though, it's worth reminding you all again that this podcast is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered to subscribe to that for free. And you are still able to listen to all of our episodes directly from the ed.net website and listen to them all for free there as well. Anyway, until next time, it's goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from George. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.